This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. This week has done us no favors in holding back the culture wars. Today we talk about Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables comments before sharing our interview with the author of an essay entitled The Culture of the Smug White Liberal. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Before we get started, we're taking turns every week um, giving another podcast player a shout out so people know that they have other options besides iTunes. And what I use is an app called Overcast. I really like it. I like the way that you can sort of pick a playlist of different episodes and work your way through those. It gives you a ton of options um, as to how to arrange the playlist, and it's just really great all the way around. So if you're looking for a different way to enjoy podcasts, check out Overcast. 
We talked on our episode Friday about a special episode we have coming your way September 20th, where Sarah and I are going to uh, debate as though we were our party's respective nominees for president. So we can all just like take a deep breath and be glad that that's not the case. But um, I think it'll be fun for us to go through that exercise. And I think it will teach us a lot about what the debate process means. I was thinking about how this is kind of similar to what's going to happen with the presidential candidates because I think even though we've heard them talk about all these issues, you know, week after week on the campaign trail, there's something about the debate forum that really changes the way you hear them discuss it. And I think it'll be interesting to see that happen with our podcast. So Dante is going to moderate the debate for us. We're going to have some subjects that we are prepared to talk about and some that we aren't. So if you have questions or issues that you'd like us to touch on in that episode, please email Dante. It's Dante, D-A-N-T-E, at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. So today we have lots of news to cover. First and foremost, today um, we're recording on Sunday evening and Hillary Clinton had a uh, wobbly spell, I guess we'll call it. Um, She became overheated at the 9-11 memorial and went to Chelsea's apartment for a while and has been diagnosed with pneumonia. Well, and the media has been kind of crazy about this story all day. I mean, I just don't have strong feelings about this, to be honest with you. I I talked about this earlier when the first time we raised um, the conspiracy theories around Hillary's health. I just, it doesn't bother me to think of our presidential candidates as having physical health issues to deal with. So even if this were something beyond pneumonia, which is a thing that lots of people get, especially when they're as tired as she has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just doesn't bother me. I mean, no one walks into the office of the presidency with all of the physical, spiritual, emotional stamina that that office requires. It's always mm-hmm. going to be occupied by a human. So yeah. I just don't get exercised about this. Well, it really upset me at first when she became, because when they were just like, oh, she's she's overheated, we don't know what's going on, I was like, okay, that's not a good enough excuse, y'all better have something else that's, like, tell us why she's really so easily overheated, and then they said, okay, she's been diagnosed with pneumonia. I don't know if they knew about it beforehand, or if once she got rehydrated, they'd t- I don't really care, but... It's so funny because I was at a friend's house and her little boy was coughing. And I literally, like, right before I checked my phone and saw this video, I said to her, I said, literally, everyone I know right now has a respiratory issue, including me. Like, what they described, she had a cough from an allergy thing. That's what I have right now. I have cough syrup on my counter. I have to take my Zyrtec. I think, I don't know if it's because I've been walking around knocking on doors and I'm outside, but my friend Elizabeth said that it's like for older people, this is a really common time of year to get pneumonia because of the allergies, which I didn't know. My dad had walking pneumonia too. And so, you know, it's sort of, it was sort of scary, but now the more I read about it, the I just read something that said like, this is what happens with no walk. That's why they call it walking pneumonia. You think you're okay. You're feeling okay. And then all of a sudden it, it hits you and you can get really easily dehydrated. And again, she's older, man. And she's, let's be honest, she's keeping up schedules. Most of us don't. So I hope she gets well soon. My five-year-old has had pneumonia twice. And really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just, it's just a hard thing. And I think once you've had it, it's easier to get it again. That's my understanding. At least someone with a medical degree will email me and tell me that's not true. I'd love to know that if that's not true, because I have it in my mind that that's the thing. But um, I think that... The only thing to say about this is that your point, they have to do better on the response because what I saw is that she was diagnosed on Friday with pneumonia. 
And it mm. seems like just coming out and being more upfront about that would have been a lot better than sort of the mm-hmm. hours of rampant speculation. But like, dang, with all this conspiracy theory already about her health, you, I mean, it's like, it's always this the way with the Clintons. It's like, I totally see both sides. I see why they're in their heads they're going, oh, hell no, we're not going to give them anything to hang their hat on. And I see the other side where people are like, but you're making more things for people to hang their hat on when you're quite, when you're not. 100% transparent so it bites them every time when, like when did, what are they going to learn every time this happens like you're oh. always going to find out so I don't know I but I again I think the thing to say is feel better Hillary yeah, feel better. well and I think that too you know she's not she's let released all her medical workers if they she found out she was diagnosed on Friday I don't think there's anything wrong with them decide like she's not under any as far as I'm concerned, obligation to share every health cons- every health diagnosis she has just because she's running for president. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, maybe I've just watched too much West Wing, but I don't think that she's obligated. The second she was diagnosed, she should have come out and be like, oh, by the way, you guys, I have pneumonia. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't think she's any under, maybe other people feel differently, but. I don't feel differently about that, except that I would just want to get in front of this stuff. Yeah. Because because there were all those conspiracies after she had a coughing fit around Labor Day. So I, I think if I were working for the Clinton team, I would probably be like, hey, y'all, we found out she has a cold. She has pneumonia. This is what's going on. So don't get all exercised if something happens, yeah, you know. Cool. Yeah. But, but I think the worst thing about all of the tweets today on this was that it's September 11th and, mm. and people were being so partisan and nasty about a person's sickness on September 11th. I just stop. So we had a, a listener ask us for a conversation on 9-11. Did you want to talk about that since we're already on the subject? Sure. Uh, Debbie said that she would like to hear a conversation about how 9-11 affected emerging adulthood for late 70s and early 80s babies, which we are. I was born in 81. Sarah, you probably were too, right? Yes, I was. So I remember... It was a good year. It it was. (laughs) I remember exactly where I was when the World Trade Centers were hit. Um, I was in my dorm room at Transylvania brushing my teeth, getting ready for class, and I had the Today Show on. That was back when I still watched the Today Show. It's been a long time. Ugh, the Today Show. But I I saw the footage of the second plane, and I remember kind of walking in like a trance back to my bathroom and putting my toothbrush down and immediately picking up my phone to call my dad. And I said, Dad, what is going on? And he said, I have no idea, Beth. And it was really scary to me because my dad has always been sort of a news junkie. I think I get this from him. <laughs> and and for him to be as stunned as I was was really hard. And um, I remember the rest of the day, there was kind of some controversy at Transylvania about whether professors should have canceled classes or not. Mm. My classes went forward. I remember sitting in an accounting class and the professor acknowledging what happened, but then saying we needed to get on with it. And I don't think that would happen today. You know, I yeah. think that's indicative of a really different time, <laughs> which makes me feel old. For me, 9-11 happening at that stage gave me a deep appreciation for President Bush that lasted even throughout sort of the the bad judgments that led to a, an unending Iraq war, because I thought he was a very good president in the aftermath of that event. And it, and it also, I think, just gave me this sense that 
the ocean is not wide enough to keep us safe. But I haven't lived in fear ever since either. So as I was trying to make sense of this, I I think it made me very pragmatic. And that's maybe the best I can say for myself. I was at Transy too, obviously. I remember taking a nap later that day and feeling really guilty about it. That's when I was Oh, interesting. Yeah, like feeling like, oh, I shouldn't have taken a nap. That's so bad of me. I think that I was my... I have a very opposite reaction to President Bush. I can look back now and I have a lot of respect for, you know, his speeches about the Muslim community. But at the time I was taking a political science class and basically that we were studying, like intervening these conflicts and uh, asserting ourselves in the way he was doing never worked. So it was an incredibly frustrating experience to learn sort of the history of why, you know, his sort of standing on the rebel and we will get them kind of rah-rah thing was the wrong reaction. And so I had a very different experience with regards to him. But, you know, with it coming about as emerging adulthood, it's just it's really difficult to say. It's like asking me how I felt before the shooting at my high school happened. I don't really remember. It's that the way I think after those events is so, you know, has so permeated my psyche and who I am now. It's really hard to remember what it was like before. I mean, I think because of the shooting that. September 11th, you know, I won't say I was prepared, but the shock was not for me what it was for other people because I was used to terrible things happening when you didn't expect them to and the news media showing up and it becoming a big deal. So I think that if, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's just really hard, like I said, to sort of piece apart how you were before and how you were after. I mean, it was a very formative age, but And I think it most certainly informed some of my politics. And it was just such a tough uh, environment to be. For a while, it felt like a very tough environment to be somebody from the left. I think that that was, that's, it's, it always, sometimes I still feel like I'm in that place where, you know, you have to be, there's like a fear. You have to be so patriotic. You can't have any sort of dissenting opinions like I told I've told the story but that I got called said that I hated America on the streets of DC because I said I was opposed to the war on terror. So yeah, I don't I don't know. It's 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 a tough thing. I think it's so it was so instructive and it's so in such a deep way. It's almost hard to kind of piece it out and put words to the ways in which it was. I think generationally it'll be a long time before we really understand this, but I do think some of the you know, millennials get all this grief for lots of aspects of of sort of our culture. But I think that there is a real pragmatism that permeates millennials. Like, I don't see people coming into the job market expecting to stay with one company and get a raise mm-hmm. every year and, a, and, you know, be on this sort of linear, progressive career track. And I don't think that people have the expectation that things that bad things aren't going to happen in this country. I think that we know they are. And I think that for all of the fatigue that we feel about conflict in the Middle East, there is still a desire to sort of balance isolationism with humanitarian interest. And, you know, I think we're a complicated group of people. And that has to trace back, at least in in part, to September 11th and our experiences of it. So speaking of conflict within the Middle East, we have a ceasefire, I think. (laughs) I'm not being, speaking of being pragmatic too. 
So this agreement should go into effect at sundown uh, Monday, September 12th, which is a significant Muslim holiday. Secretary Kerry negotiated this agreement with Russia in Geneva this past week, and it has five documents aimed at improving cooperation, securing delivery of humanitarian aid, ensuring compliance with the ceasefire and facilitating the political process. That's all pretty vague, and we're not going to see any of those documents because of their sensitivity. But Secretary Kerry has touted the most substantial aspect of the agreement as preventing the Air Force, the Syrian Air Force, from flying combat missions in areas where the opposition is present. This is because Assad's Air Force has really uh, created the most civilian casualties in Syria through airstrikes. And um, illustrative of that point is the fact that a few hours after this agreement was announced, 90 people in northwestern Syria, including in Aleppo, were killed by airstrikes. So there's no guarantee of compliance. There is no real enforcement mechanism that's been made public. There are lots of parties involved, and not everyone has agreed, including some of the United States allies in the region. Iran, significantly, at Russia's urging, has agreed to this ceasefire. It's really hard to know if this thing gets violated. It'll be hard to pinpoint who's violating it. And the United States and Russia, as we know, have pretty different opinions about sort of who the good guys and the bad guys are in the Middle East. So this is complicated, but it is it is a step forward. I read somewhere that an expert on military affairs called this the the least awful of the options. You know, we just have to hope that that this, at least for some time, creates a humanitarian zone around Aleppo so that people can get in and help help some of the many people who are trying to get out of the area and that that it can be sustainable. So we're cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I think that that's all we can all we can be right now. So to wrap up before we move on to complimenting the other side, we have one more Hillary Clinton related story. I will I'll just quote her. She said, to be grossly generalistic, you can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, right? Racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. She added, and unfortunately, there are people like that, and he has lifted them up. He has given voice to their website that used to only have 11,000 people and now have 11 million. He tweets and retweets offensive, hateful, mean-spirited rhetoric. And then she said that the other half were people who have gone through a lot of economic anxiety, and we should try to sympathize with those people. So that went well. (laughs) It's so funny. You know, my feed was like, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of people in my political leaning circle were just like, yeah, but it's true. (laughs) How is it a gaffe if it's true? Oh, That's a lot of people. Half of his supporters. That's a lot. Well, here's the thing, too. It's what I said before. If she's being grossly generalistic, I think it's a false binary. I think the basket of deplorables, are those ideas deplorable? Yes. Are those people? No. Because, like I've said before, the, uncompl- the, you know, the uncomfortable truth for all of us is you can be a loving family man or woman or a wonderful grandmother and be a awful racist. And you can be xenophobic and sexist and still be a great boss to your employee. You know what I mean? So I, I I think that calling the basket of the, those attitudes deplorable, you know, I, the oversimplification for me, I do, th- I, I mean, I do think it is a huge part of his 
support is, you know, dog whistling to these ideas, appealing to these ideas. Do I think that over half of his supporters or half of his supporters feel, you know, at least check one of those boxes? Maybe. Do I even think they would say that? No, but I think they are. You know what I mean? Like people who think, well, I just think that this culture is damaging, but what they really mean is, well, I don't like this race of people, but they would never say that. I don't know. I'm talking in circles now. Intervene before I keep, I I make my own basket of deplorable gaffe. Gaff? I don't even know how to pronounce that. I think that the problem that I have with this statement chiefly is that by design, the Clinton campaign has been set up to own the moral high ground in this election. Something from her campaign comes out to tell us every day that she is the unifying candidate. She is the love everybody candidate. She's going to be, she said these words at the DNC, right? She wants to be the president of everybody, people who vote for her and people who don't, Republicans and Democrats. And I think that if you set yourself up that way and then come out and call, like what, 11, 12 million people deplorable, Mm. it's a problem. It's not, it's not helpful. And what really got me very clear on how I felt about this was seeing Chrissy Teigen's tweet that got retweeted a lot where she said like, hey, it's real simple. If you aren't one of these things, you're not in the basket. Are you are you mad for your deplorable friends? (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I am, (laughs) you know, because as you said, there are a lot of people, particularly in the area that I grew up in, who support Donald Trump and who have some views on topics that I disagree with. But they are really good people. And there are really good people in my more immediate vicinity who support Donald Trump, not really because they support him, but because they can't vote for Hillary Clinton. And there are legitimate reasons that they have for that. Basically, this this election cannot be you are a good person if you vote for Hillary Clinton and you are not if you don't. That is not the place that our United States in 2016 should be. And I say this as a person who everybody knows is a never Trump person. I cannot stand the idea of what he would do as president. I think it would kill my party and hurt our country. So I'm not defending Donald Trump in any way, but I am saying there are motivations for supporting him that don't fall into this basket. And I completely agree with you that the people who hold these views, even if we would classify some of those views with an ism, you know, or an, a phobia, they're not all deplorable people. And I understand that she's trying to call out this sort of alt-right movement. And and I do not deny the existence of that. I saw a great piece from Katie Turr over the weekend where she was saying, look, I go to rallies all over the country and there are significant numbers of people at Donald Trump rallies who still believe President Obama was not born in the United States. It's real. I understand it. It is deserving of attention. But there are a lot of people who are just getting through the day at their jobs and going home and trying to make dinner and do their laundry who are not tracking every word that he says and support him and don't deserve to be talked about this So way. can I push back against this, though? This is what bothers me. Not necessarily about what you said, about, but the approach generally. So there is no disagreement from really anyone that this these types of ideas are the undercurrent of the Donald Trump candidacy. And there is really no disagreement that these that these ideas these this basket of deplorables racism sexism homophobic xenophobia xenophobia islamophobia these are damaging ideas that are ethically problematic and morally wrong donald trump can say whatever the hell he wants whenever he wants and we're all just supposed to chalk it up 
to including racist, sexist, terrible things. And we all are supposed to roll our eye and give him this, you know, whatever. But she has to speak perfectly about everything (laughs) all the time. And we can't say, but she's right. The stuff that he speaks to is deplorable. And maybe she didn't mean to insult, you know, the people. I mean, I, I just, it just seems like she's being held to a kind of unfair standard in which she must, I mean, like I said, she has to speak perfectly and all the time with complete transparency and complete authenticity and complete accuracy 100% of the time and never insult anybody. Meanwhile, we have a, tr- a true threat to our democracy who dog whistles constantly to racism and sexism and speaks off the cuff and insults people. And she's the one getting called out. It just feels so frustrating sometimes. So we've been down this path yeah. before, right? I mean, I don't find the poor Clinton's argument all that compelling. You don't feel like she's held to a double standard? I think she is held to a double standard on a lot of things. I also think on the topic of speaking to people in a unifying way, she created that standard because she's told us that that's what she's going to do. And I don't think it always has to be comparative. Like, you are absolutely correct about the undercurrents of the Trump campaign and all of the things that you said about him. That can be 100% true and this can be a really unfortunate comment, right? And she has said that she regretted Mm -hmm. it. But what's annoying about this is that he does say things just off the cuff, which tells you that he believes them, right? Like, that's what people like about him. He believes the things he says. That's what a lot of us find horrifying about him, too. He believes the things that he says. I don't think for a second that she came up with this line off the cuff. That's not her way. And I think she believes this. And that's okay, But it's important to note how different that is from the things that she's told us about what her campaign is about before now. And look, how big of a deal is this? I mean, this is not a I don't think this is a game changing statement for just about anybody. What I think it is, is a gaffe. I think it's Mitt Romney's 47 percent comment. Right. And it's it's one of those things that as an unforced error and and it's it doesn't feel great for people who are sort of in the middle of things to hear. But does it really change the landscape? No, No, it doesn't. Now, I think it continues to stoke the fires between sort of the left and right, and we don't need that. But but I think that's what it does. So we're going to compliment the other side before we move on to our interview. To do our part in 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 trying to calm that down. Stronger together. Uh, Republican State Senator, I'm complimenting Republican State Senator Roger Katz, he wrote an op-ed in the Maine Today newspaper um, a couple weeks ago that was really sort of unapologetic and forceful. He rejected Donald Trump and didn't really pull a single punch in going after the worst aspects of the Donald Trump and his campaign, and including many of the so-called basket of deplorables, I guess we'll, we'll start calling it. So that's my compliment. I'm going to keep calling out the Republicans who go after Donald Trump. <laughs> I'll try to get more creative. Y'all need to send me some ideas. So I wanted to compliment um, Evan Bai, who is running for Senate in Indiana. There's some questions about his residency in Indiana, which I found out today and thought was interesting. But I wanted to compliment him because he has been very, very active in the No Labels organization, which we've talked about on the show before. That's a bipartisan effort led by John Huntsman, my favorite ever, and Joe Lieberman. And um, they're, you know, 
their focus is problem solving and bringing together an agenda that most Americans agree on and really trying to work hard and get past party lines. So I think it's great to see someone who's been so heavily involved in that effort uh, going back into or, you know, seeking the opportunity to go back into public service. So today in the suit, I feel like this basket of deplorables comment was like written to set up the interview that we're going to share with you. (laughs) We are talking with Nikki Johnson Houston, who is a tax lawyer in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Numerous listeners sent us her essay called The Culture of the Smug White Liberal. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E 
Quince.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So thanks for having me. Um, My name is Nikki Johnson Houston. I actually am a tax lawyer in Philadelphia. I have my own tax firm, phillytaxdiva.com. Prior to starting my own firm about three years ago, um, I was assistant city solicitor for the city of Philadelphia law department. um, And that was sort of the bulk of my basically legal experience. I graduated from law school in 2004. Um, A lot of people in my area really know me for my advocacy besides sort of my legal skill. Um, They know me because of my advocacy for the homeless and those living in poverty. And that comes from my family's experience with homelessness um, as a child. And I've experienced homelessness three times in my life. And I really advocate on behalf of young people and the importance of education. So, you know, I like to think I'm an advocate in my personal life and my professional life. That's amazing. So you have written this uh, very pointed and candid look at the Democratic Party for Huffington Post. What uh, what inspired you? Is this something you've been thinking about a long time or was there sort of a precipitating event for you to write this? I think I've been thinking about it for a while, but I definitely think sort of the conversations I've seen during the election really sort of expressed itself in my frustration in, in writing the piece. Um, you know, a lot of people question whether, you know, I was a Democrat or a Republican. As I said in the piece, I'm a Democrat. I'm a lifetime Democrat. I'm like a third generation Democrat. I mean, it is what I am. But although I may agree with many of the policy positions that Democrats are taking, I don't always necessarily agree sort of with the rhetoric and sort of some of the conversations that I feel like we're having that I don't think move us forward. When did you first start to notice that disconnect between the conversations and the the actual policy and execution? Well, I mean, look, I, I do a lot of advocacy work, so I am fortunate enough to work with a lot of nonprofits and go to schools and colleges and high schools and sort of share my experience and really talk about advocacy. So I'm fortunate that I see a lot of people who are Democrats and Republicans who are trying to do the right thing and are sort of doing the work. Um, But, you know, I also am a lawyer and that means in some ways I'm privileged and I get to see people who are not necessarily doing the work in the same way. And that's not a bad thing. But I kind of got the impression and I had a conversation with someone and they were being very negative about what it meant to be a Republican or that it meant that someone was racist. And basically what it came down to is they felt that by taking that point of view, that somehow that they were um, helping African-Americans. And it made me really start thinking about what people were saying and what sort of they were actually doing when it came to their life. And, you know, I kind of wrote it as, I know I kind of came across a little bit as scathing, but I kind of did it as sort of a slap on the wrist a little bit to say, hey, let's be thoughtful about what we're saying about these things. Are we who we think we are? And maybe to give a little bit of a break to people. I mean, I I think when you start talking about issues of race and um, sexual orientation and religion and I think they're very hard and I think they're very nuanced and we don't always get it right. I think my frustration with some of my fellow Democrats wasn't that they were getting it wrong. It was that they were not only were they sometimes getting it wrong themselves, but they were also pointing the finger 
and calling people racist. And as someone who's African-American, um, I've certainly experienced racism in my life, but um, I'm very careful about pointing that finger at someone because it can damage, it can damage someone. And I think that um, for me, it's about sort of cross, you know, bridges, you know, and having a conversation with someone. And I think that's kind of how you move people forward. And, you know, I thought that maybe I wasn't the only person that was feeling this way. And apparently, you know, a lot of people agreed with me. Um, what's been interesting to me is that Republicans, liberals, um, Black Lives Matter, Black activists, a lot of people across the board, even self-proclaimed smug liberals said, you know what, you have some really good points. We never thought of it this way. And so I, th I think it started a larger conversation and I, I wasn't sure how it would be accepted or if anybody would even read it. So I've been shocked because at this point we're on the, we're at 88,000 likes on HuffPo. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. So um, I w had some questions. I'm uh, currently running for office in my hometown of Paducah. Um, I'm running for city commission. And I do um, hear quite often that there is sort of a presumption and really sort of taking for granted among Democrats the um, black vote. Do you feel like you were speaking to sort of that and and kind of talking and feeling like, like you said, like just saying you're for us is not good enough? Is that sort of what you're trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, that was part of it. I mean, I was talking about what it means to me as an African-American. Look, I'm fortunate. I've been able to pull myself out of poverty and homelessness but I don't see that those same pathways are available to other um, African-Americans who are living in the inner city. And so for me, I'm really interested not in being a surrogate for either party, but saying I want to see my community um, rise above. And I think that that's not just to the benefit of my community, but I also think it's to the benefit of the country. You, you can't have such a large percentage of the population being left behind. There's a lot of talent in the communities. So yes, it certainly was, part of it was an answer to my frustration of policies that I don't necessarily, look, I think that Democrats are coming from what they believe is a good place. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a Democrat. But I think the outcome doesn't always happen the way that they want it to. And at this point, I don't care what party someone is. I'm willing to sit down and to have a conversation to come up with solutions that will make, you know, not only my community better, but really our country better. I mean, I think that there's so much division amongst us that we really kind of need to go back and look at each other as fellow Americans and fellow citizens and kind of invest in that. So your issue is more with the the um, that sort of characterization and really two-dimensional characterization of Democrats always the good guy, Republicans always the bad guy? Yes, I think that's, uh, first of all, I think it's too easy mm -hmm. because people are complicated. So to me, because someone's a Republican doesn't tell, any, tell me anything about them other than the fact that they're a Republican. I'm an African-American woman. It means that I've had certain experiences and I walk in the world the same a certain way. Um, you're not African American, so you may have had different experiences. So I think there's certainly commonality, but there's differences, and we may pick different candidates based on those differences. It doesn't mean that my experience is any more valid than your experience. And I think sort of having that respect, at least how I was raised, was that you know, having the conversation, doing the advocacy, that's how you kind of move things forward. 
And one of the reasons I really wanted to write this is because someone said to me that the problem was the Republicans. And if we could just get the Republicans to see things our way, that things would change. And I thought, well, gosh, if that's it's kind of like marriage counseling. If you think it's the other person's fault, you're focusing on them and you're not focusing on your role in it. And I think that some of these issues, especially of race, are kind of all of our issues. I don't yeah. know that any of us get it right. You know, my experience with race is being African-American. Like, I'm not a social scientist or anything like that. So my expertise is really based on my experience. And I just kind of wanted just to have a broader conversation about how we were looking at these things. And I think it mattered that I was an African-American willing to say I wanted to have these conversations. And also saying, look, I'm a proud Democrat, but maybe we need to ask ourselves if we're going down the path that we think we're going down. I thought your use of the word smug was in itself a bridge building exercise with Republicans because I do, as a Republican, experience that sense of often being characterized as racist or homophobic or fill in the blank, right, with with any kind of negative characterization, when I think that often I want the same things as people in the Democratic Party. My experience of being at the DNC this year, hearing about issues like policing, for example, I think that is a hugely important issue that can't be effectively nationalized that is an issue for communities to grapple with, right? A national conversation is a good thing, but the execution of that, I feel, is most effective at the local level where there's jurisdiction over police forces and things like that. And I think that just by kind of stepping back and calling out the fact that, like, labeling all Republicans as racist ignores so much good and so much common work that could happen at the local level where it's most effective on issues that are important to people of all races, but especially the African-American community. And I, and I look, I think that's a good point. We can have a conversation about whether um, policing practices should be nationalized or happen at the local level. But for me, what's important is that someone like you is having the conversation. And I think by calling someone a racist, it, it stops the conversation because it puts the person on the defensive. So I can disagree with your arguments or your issues, I don't have to disagree with you as a person. I don't know you well enough. And I, I just think that in trying to sort of write what has been some wrongs sort of against my community, I think that people have done and said things in hopes of trying to be more inclusive, but in turn, sometimes we've excluded other people. And I don't, I just want to have the rights and opportunities that everybody else in the country wants to have. And I don't think that that has to be, someone else has to be in, in excluded from that conversation. I, I think that we're all better by being inclusive. We don't have to agree. And I think that was the point is, I believe how I believe, you believe how you believe. Let's sit down and have a conversation. And somewhere along the line, we've gotten away from that to proving that if you believe X or you vote for this person, then you're automatically a bad person. And I just think that that's not really how life works. Well, so can I push back against that just a little bit? Because I, I got to say, as a as a white person who considers herself liberal, it didn't feel bridge building to me. You know, smug felt very different when I was reading it. It didn't feel like you were starting a conversation with me as somebody, as a, you know, a white progressive or liberal or Democrat or whatever. You know, it felt, and I, even though I, I, I found myself agreeing 
with some of your points, like I thought that your point about um, criminal justice reform, like the, it's not an accident that maybe it's becoming such an issue that now that opiate addiction is hitting the white community so hard, I thought that was a really great point and a really interesting observation. But, you know, there's also like I bristle so hard at accusations of like Democrats are just politically correct and that's all that matters because I don't feel that way. I don't know a lot of Democrats who do feel that way. And sometimes it feels like more of a media characterization of progressives than a reality. And so, that, I mean, there was part of it. It didn't feel like super, you know, I kind of bristled under the word smug because it's not a positive word. Nobody wants to be known as smug. No, so but- I wonder if you got any pushback from that. Oh, absolutely. But look, is smug a... Uh- Is that like a slap? Absolutely. I'm not going to say that it wasn't. But to be honest, I'm a Democrat. So I actually didn't, I wasn't calling Democrats smug, but everybody has the ability to be smug. But yes, people did push back on it. But I think it's funny that smug is is certainly not a flattering characterization, but it's not a career ender. And we throw around characterizations a lot of misogyny and racism and homophobia and those are career enders. And to be honest, I was talking about a club that I'm a part of. Um, there are people who threw back at me that I obviously had problems with white people and that I was a racist. Well, you know what? I've been married to a white man for almost 12 years. So if I'm a racist, I'm like the worst one ever in the history of racism. So that's not what racism means. How many times do we have to go over this? <laughs> kind of what my point was is, look, I, I tried to... I was talking about a specific group of people. So I wasn't talking about all progressives. I wasn't talking about all Democrats. I wasn't even talking about all white people. I was talking about a very small sort of elite group of people, not the people who do the grassroots work who I know, who I do a lot of work with, and they're coming from a good point of view. I think my point was is that a lot of times we lecture about these issues but we're not necessarily living up to them. And all I was saying is, hey, maybe we should be a little bit more thoughtful. So you know what? Was it necessarily a bridge to the smug white liberal? Not necessarily, but I'm, I have a lot of friends that kind of fall into this category. They're not bad people. They're coming from a good place. And I think my point was is that they're coming from a good place, even if the outcome isn't necessarily what we'd all like to have happen. But I'm saying, are we also willing to give people on the other side who are Republicans, who are Libertarians, who are Green Party, are we willing to sometimes give them the benefit of the doubt? And sometimes we're not. And all I'm saying is, before we start throwing out those words, if you're going to throw out stuff about race, you kind of have to make sure that you're where you think you are racially. That's, it's just a very hard issue to be in and to be thoughtful about that. Because, you know, again... My husband's liberal, and um, but a lot of times we, black people, things have not been moving forward in our communities. It's not because liberals don't want it to have happen, but some of the policies in execution don't work out the way that we think they are, and we're the ones who kind of always end up with the short stick end of the stick, and that <laughs> well, was I'll, the point. I'll and tell not, you because, not because you have not because there's bad intentions and believe me, there's blame to go around everywhere. Well, and I'll tell you too, you know, as a woman in the democratic party, I've been on the receiving end of plenty amount of smug attitudes. I was actually in my hometown the other day watching this, um, white person lecture a black person about how no black person could ever vote for Hillary Clinton. This person was a Bernie supporter. And I thought, Oh, please stop. Like, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been on the receiving end of that. I guess I, I would just say, I think, 
I think that what's interesting, you know, I think both parties do exactly what you're talking about. That's how we got to this point. That's how we got so hyper-polarized, is both parties do it, and liberals do it from an elitist sort of down the mountain, and Republicans have a tendency to do it from... The, you know, we're the real Americans and, you know, we're not these New York City Americans. Well, God, God help anybody that lives in New York City. You're not a real American. You know, so it's just stuff like that. I think we both do it. And I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's definite the idea that as a politician, we support the, you know, Democratic Party supports the African-American community. That doesn't mean that they anybody doesn't have the right to stand up and say, well, things aren't getting fixed and they're certainly not getting fixed quick enough. Absolutely. And here's the thing. You know what? I I, I didn't think about building a bridge to us because I'm already on the bridge with Democrats. Like I'm a Democrat. I've spent most of my life actually would have called myself a liberal. I did a progressive fellowship. So, you know, this isn't I'm not a Republican, even though there's nothing wrong with being a Republican. You know, I'm a Democrat and I just wanted all of us to have a larger conversation because the problem with both of those conversations feels like neither one of those really touch on the things that I'm concerned with as an African-American. And that's really kind of the point that I was talking about is that both sides say that they care about our community, but I'm like, okay, but these are still the issues that are happening with us. Let's deal with that. And I, I was very serious, like, let's all sit down and figure out how we can make this work. And how do we make it work in other communities? Because my community isn't the only one that's struggling. A few months back, I wrote a piece about working class whites. And to be honest, I see a lot of the issues that they have going on has been going on in the black community for 30 years. And I actually made the argument that we have a lot more in common than we do separately. And so I think a white working class and a black working class has more in common than um, many of the lawyers I may know. And yes, when I talked about the educated elite, that's me. I have a law degree in MBA and a master's in tax. I mean, I'm educated, but I also, because of my advocacy work, I'm also not only in my community, but I've been getting a lot of calls lately to go into white working class communities where they're being um, riddled with the opiate epidemic. So I think that there's a lot of commonality and I think we really, I think it doesn't help our community to split us apart like that because it really makes an us versus them and we end up with the short end of the stick. So I think for African Americans, it is to our benefit to have everyone talking about these issues. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs, or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We 
We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. When you think about the um, the pull of the Democratic Party to for African-Americans right now, you know, you started your piece with like, it's not surprising that I'm a Democrat because I'm an African-American and, and that's the way the trend works. I, I think we would be a healthier country and, and certainly my party would be a healthier party. And I, I totally relate to you in the difficulty in criticizing your own party because that's what I spend, I don't know, nine-tenths of our podcast doing is criticizing my own party. So it's hard. I think it's much harder to criticize your own party than the other party. But I, I think we would be a healthier party, certainly, and probably a healthier country if both parties were reflective of the demographic makeup of the country. Do you ag- agree with that first off? And, and if you do, I would love to hear from you where you think there are opportunities for the Republican Party to do a better job, both appealing to, but more importantly, you know, acting on policies that that matter to communities that we have not traditionally reached out to. So, yes, I absolutely think that having um, diversity in both parties or, you know, even in third parties is important. Um, I don't think that any group is a monolith, even though I don't think there's any group that votes sort of as a block in the same way that African-Americans do. I, I think we're probably 95% of us are Democrats, but that's not by accident. So, you know, my piece was about Democrats, but I'm a Democrat for a reason and I'm not a Republican. And part of it is 
I, I think there's been some calculation. Republicans don't come into our community. And it's sort of a chicken or egg kind of category. Is it because you know, we don't support Republicans, so they don't bother coming into the community? Or do we not support them because we don't feel that they support our agenda? And I have a feeling that it's a combination of both of those things. But many of the things that are important to the African-American community, the perception is, is that Republicans kind of always pick the opposite side. And so one of the things that I think that it's important, I want a two-party system in my city of Philadelphia, any of these big cities, I think people need to have options and I think you need to have diversity of thought, but you also need to be there. So, um, you know, Donald Trump talking about these issues, I think is important because he's one of two people who can be president of the United States. And I want whoever's going to be president of the United States to be talking about these issues. The problem with the Republicans is that they only come into our community maybe two, three months before a national election, but they're not there the, uh, you know, the other four years and Democrats are, you know, they're in your schools, they're your committee people. Um, they come to your kid's graduation. They're at career day. They're the person giving out the turkeys and, you know, in the neighborhood. And that's kind of where people live and die, so to speak. And I think that Republicans have been intimidated and too afraid to come in and, they're going to need to come in and it's going to be hard and they're going to get pushback and it's not going to be easy. Um, but you can't expect that sort of 50 years of ignoring a lot of our issues is going to sort of happen overnight or, you know, over two weeks. So I appreciate that he's talked about it. But, you know, somebody that I think has done a better job is someone like Rand Paul. So he went to Howard University like he was going out there and expanding it, you know, it's kind of the same old, same old. And Hillary does the same thing, too, which is they all kind of go to black churches. Um, and I think that's an important role. But I think for young people, there's a lot of more diversity in terms of places that they're going to get their information. And, uh, you know, black people like authenticity. So no one expects you to come into our community and be something different than who you are. Just be straight with us and we can make a decision, you know, we can decide for ourselves. So I wouldn't encourage, I think some people have kind of said, oh, it sounds like you might be a conservative. I'm a Democrat. I don't want to be something different than being a Democrat, but I don't think that there's a problem with you being a Republican. And so for me, it's not about me necessarily changing parties. It's about me fighting for the party that I would like to see reflected, but for you to fight for the party that you would like to see reflected and for us to sit down at the table together and figure out the things that we have in common. Nikki, you'll like one of my favorite stories I heard recently with regards to what you were just saying about people's presence and being your authentic self. I was meeting with a consultant and he said that <laughs> he heard the story when Jimmy Carter ran for president, there was some new, you know, New England liberal, I don't even know who it was, running in the primary, several of them. And the black civil rights leaders got together and said, okay, we're going to pick our horse. Let's meet with everybody. Everybody come in and meet with us. And, you know, the New England liberals came in and they said exactly what they were supposed to say and you know, hit all the high points. And then Jimmy Carter came in and he said, well, uh, Jimmy Carter came in and he argued with us for two hours. And they were like, well, you still endorsed Jimmy Carter. Why? And he said, because he was the only one that looked like he didn't want to get out of the room the second he got there. And I love that story. And I think that's a, and that, I think that's a great story. And that was kind of part of what I was talking about with the piece is that, um, you know, I think there's a lot of positive things about liberalism and there is a lot of policies 
that were founded because of the support of liberals that are to my community's benefit. So I don't want it to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but there is a need for authenticity and to come in and to give us the respect that you would give someone else beyond just pandering. So that's kind of what I would say to like any particular group. And, you know, you write something like this and you don't think that like all these people are going to read it or like it or that it's going to kind of be a lightning rod. I also think it was just the timing of the piece in terms of people were talking ab about these issues. And I guess that's kind of what I hope everyone kind of takes away from this interview and kind of from the piece is, you know, let's, let's build some bridges, let's sit down and talk, let's disagree and let's, you know, let's fight it out, but let's have that conversation. I really think that too much of our life is turning into the comment section of Facebook and people say things online that they wouldn't necessarily say to someone else. And yeah, I mean, it was a little harsh what I wrote, but I tried, I tried not to vilify anybody because that's a, that's a harder conversation to have. And so I tried to write it in a way that this is what I would say to someone in real life and it would be forceful, but I still think that we could have the conversation. And, you know, I ask people really, Hey, look inside yourself. There are things that you're doing and there's places that you can be that maybe you can make a ch change in terms of diversity in a way that you would like to see it. That's more than just talking about it online because as an African American, you know, I care about where I work. I care about, you know, whether um, I don't have kids, but if I had kids, whether they could go to my neighborhood school, you know, I've chosen to live in my community, even though I have resources and I could have moved out. And so, you know, I see what that looks like on a day to day basis. And so, you know, let's all talk. And, you know, it's really kind of interesting that we've gotten to a place as a country that that seems kind of like crazy and revolutionary that we're saying, let's talk to each other. What do you say to people? I completely agree with that point. What do you say to people who listen to this conversation and say, you know what? It's just divisive to be talking about race this way. We're, we're past this point and, and even acknowledging issues of race is divisive. Well, I mean, race is a reality and you know, it, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what I say about race. It matters that there's people who are protesting on the streets and rioting. I mean, I don't have to say we have a race problem. They're saying that we have a race problem. And look, acknowledging that there's differences in race isn't a bad thing. I mean, look, I have these conversations with my husband. I have these conversations with my in-laws. And, um, you know, some of my in-laws are very conservative, Fox News watching, um, and they're the nicest people. So we don't necessarily have necessarily the same political leanings. And we've had some very tough conversations and you wouldn't even want to see what happens at Thanksgiving sometimes. But, you know, we've managed to make it work. And so honestly, as an African-American, it's not something that I have the luxury to always ignore. But I think what also gets lost in the conversation about race is I have a sense of gratitude of growing up in a different America than say my grandmother did. And it's something that, you know, coming from where I came from, you know, I was homeless on the streets for several months and I was sent to go live with my grandmother and I got off the Greyhound bus and 
I always tell the story when I speak that my grandmother hugged me and she looked at me and she said, Nikki, you're fortunate enough to be born in a different America than the America I was born into, to the greatest generation of women that will have ever lived up until this time. What are you going to do with it? And I kind of looked at her and I said, I want to be a lawyer and I want to have lots of shoes. Because when I came to her, I had one and a half pair of shoes. And the one and a half pair of shoes was because I had one pair of shoes that fit and I lost one of those shoes. And the shelter where we were staying gave me a pair of shoes that didn't quite fit. And so to me, success meant having all the shoes that I could, that I could afford that fit and also being a lawyer. And what my grandmother wanted me to take from that, because she was born in 1920 in Mississippi and worked almost her whole life as a domestic, was that although I was poor and I was black and I was a woman, I was born in a different America and that's what she fought for. And that my obligation was to try to make the best life I could for myself, but also to build upon the legacy of the people who came before me. And so I think the problem when we have these race conversations is that Yes, there's so, there's so much more we could do and we need to do, but I also have a sense of gratitude for the fact that I was born in America and I was born in America during this time because I literally am kind of the first generation to be born outside of Jim Crow, outside of you know Loving versus Virginia where I could marry whoever I want. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm the American dream and a lot of people of my generation are. Does that mean we stop fighting for the people who haven't been able to get there? Absolutely not. But it also means that I have a sense of gratitude for the legacy that I was given. And I think that more than one thing can be true at the same time. And I think as a country, we forget that sometimes. We are like, this country hasn't moved forward or race doesn't, race doesn't matter at all. The country has moved forward and race still does matter. And let's start working on it mattering less. And not just race, but socioeconomics, every child in this country, regardless of what race you are, regardless of your socioeconomic status, should have the opportunity to have a decent education, to have, if you're willing to work hard, to have a good job, to have safety. Um, and I want that for everyone, whether they look like me or not. And so to me, I think my life is possible because of this country. And I will fight to have the country um, that I that I want, and I want to fight with other Americans to make that happen. And I don't mean fight in a bad way, but hey, let's have the conversation. So today in the heels, we're going to talk about paring stuff down. Beth, are you doing? Are you doing con marine? Are you just getting rid of stuff? I'm just getting rid of stuff. See, I can't support that. I mean, I guess I can, but I really think you should do. I mean, I'm such a con marine disciple. For let me let me translate this odd language I'm currently speaking. The Japanese, the magic. Let's see. Wait, I love it so much. I got to make sure I get the title right. The the books over there on my on my bedside table. The art of decluttering. The life changing magic of tidying up. I think that's right. The magic of time. Anyway, Marie Kondo, this little Japanese lady. She's the cutest thing you ever saw in your life. And it's, it's a little wacky. You talk to your stuff, you self tell it, you held everything in your hand and see if it sparks joy. If it doesn't, it goes. And you have to thank it before you say thank you for the role you played in my life. And then you let it go. 
Um, I'm a total convert. I was really hoping you were con marine, but you're just. I feel like I sort of on my own have have done what you just described. I mean, I tried to look at everything in my closet this weekend to say, you know, is it necessary? Is it useful? Mm -hmm. Do I love it? Right. And if it didn't meet at least one of those standards and preferably two. I, I got rid of it. I eliminated, this is obscene. Like, this is obscene. I, I'm embarrassed to even say it. I eliminated 144 pieces of clothing from my life this weekend. Oh, I'm sure. My, when I did the Conmarie the first time. Now, now I'm down to like, if I like, oh, that shirt's not working for me. I just get rid of it now. And I probably do that. You know, every season I get rid of a five to eight-ish things. But when I first did, I mean, the piles were as tall as my five-year-old. I mean, I'm sure it was that many. Yeah, I just looked at it and thought, why do I have all this stuff? I don't understand. Yeah, I hate it. Let me tell you something. First of all, you're pretty much on Comrie anyway, so you might as well get the book because she tells you to start with clothes anyway. Highly recommend. And I really like the second book that she did, which is like, because she has an order you do everything in, so you get really good at making these decisions with easier stuff. And then, like, by the end, you're on, like, sentimental stuff, so you've really sort of learned how to do this but what what slowed me up in the first book is you hit this category called um kimono which is like miscellaneous well what does that mean everything in my house is miscellaneous after clothes books and dvds so in the second book she goes like okay now do makeup now do um any kind of personal hygiene product that's not makeup okay now do this part of your kitchen now, like the, the, she lays out the kimono period or like category so i'm working through that I mean, I've read, or I'm an organization person. I think it's interesting. I've always liked it. I like to keep things neatish. And she just, what I love about it is she just dispels everything. Like this, do a little bit every day. She's like, no, if you do it right, you don't have to do every a little bit every day. And like, she just cuts down every sort of traditional piece of advice. But when you do it and you do it right and you release all that stuff, like, I know this sounds wacky because she really does tell you to like talk to your stuff at certain points, but... I'm telling you, I don't think it's an accident that I completed this process and then ran for office. It's like when you clear, we don't feel like you're surfing on this undercurrent of crap filling up your house that you're like sort of is always in the back of your brain that you should deal with. It frees up all this mental space to like change your life. I know I sound wacky, y'all. I know it sounds wacky, but I'm telling you, it's true. No, Brooke Castillo says the same thing, and I'm a big disciple of hers, and I I am just tired of everything. I look yeah, around gotta go. every area of my life, and I don't want the stuff. It's got to go. And there are mm-hmm. lots of there are lots of ideas that I don't want anymore and people I don't want anymore. And like, there's just lots of things that I'm, I'm Let me just like, tell you, I mean. get this stuff out of here. I did my junk drawer the Connery way. Like, gosh, I guess it was probably a year or so. It's still the same way. I will post a picture in our show notes of my beautiful junk drawer. It makes me so happy. It's like everything I need is where I need it. I'm not always thinking, oh, I need to clean this out. Or, oh, I need to get rid of this. Like, I mean, I just have like enough daily pick up for my kids and that kind of stuff to deal with. I do not need the undercurrent lurking in every drawer in the back of every closet. Like the bottom of my closet is clean. There's nothing down there. And there's like, you know, five things on the top shelf. That's it. Oh, God, I love it so much. I was talking to my friend Whitney. I love Whitney and Derek. Hello, guys. Um, about they just had a baby girl and she's beautiful and wonderful. And I said to them, if you love her, please don't ever buy her one single thing. Don't buy it. Because I do it. spent two weekends ago cleaning out my five year old's closet and we got rid of like five trash bags of stuff. And I thought, what? She's five. Why have I weighed her down with all of this crap? Yeah, I don't. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's time to I don't go. buy anything. For, I don't buy any clothes for my kids because I get all hand me downs. 
and it's like toys and stuff. Like I don't ever it, Christmas and birthdays, and when that stuff comes in, other stuff goes out. No, I don't want all the stuff. The stuff has to go. Here's what I think about your Conmarie thing, though. I think this gets back to like our fundamental differences that we've talked about with our strengths finder and such, where you're an input person, and like I get input overload really fast, so I just want to like create my way to do it and do it right. But you're gonna have you're gonna have joy in finding systems and getting all these thoughts about the right systems. That's what I think this is. I mean, I just she's not. I'm just telling you, she's amazing. I'm, I'm... It's not just about a, it's not really a system. It's like a philosophy. It's so deep. I really think you'd like it. If you like Brooke Castillo, I'm telling you, I think you should give Marie Kondo a try. If I could get her in a podcast that I listen to in my car, that would be super well, helpful. Well, she only, she only speaks Japanese legitimately, does not speak English. So I don't know how that would work. Hmm. Someone should get on that. Oh. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. We're um, excited about everything that's coming up in September. So please keep checking in on our website, pantsypoliticsshow.com, so you don't miss anything. Thank you so much for your iTunes reviews. My favorite one this week said, I've been in this on this thing from the ground floor. I loved it so much. So thanks for that review. And we will be back with you on Friday for the briefcase. Until then, keep it in your